Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts, literally, to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. When did you first start watching horror movies? Did you stumble onto something weird while flipping around the dial and realize that this was made just for you? Was it a friend down the street, or that eccentric uncle whose house was filled with a library of creepy VHS splatter movies? For many, it was the vaunted and late-lamented horror host. Dating back to the 1950s and 60s, most of the local TV stations around the country ran a catalog of inexpensive old horror films late on Friday nights or on Saturday afternoons. And they had a host, usually dressed in horror show drag, climbing out of a dusty coffin and making fun of the movies that we actually loved. Usually they did it with charm and a little love, and we forgave them their mockery because they were showing our movies and nobody else was. New York had Zachary, Cleveland had Svengoolie, Philadelphia had Dr. Shock. In my hometown of Los Angeles, Vampira was the first of the breed on Channel 7, though that was a little before my time. Later on, Channel 13 had Jeepers Creepers, and Channel 9 had Seymour. It all changed dramatically in 1981, when Channel 9, after the death of Larry Vincent, who played Seymour, brought a new kind of horror host on board. She'd been a Las Vegas showgirl, an actress, a performer of improvisational comedy, and an undead sex bomb with a quick and lacerating sense of humor. Yes, Elvira was unleashed, fully realized from the get-go, and her popularity was so great that it didn't take long for her to go from local to national, even international, sensation. Performed by Cassandra Peterson, there was something else special about Elvira, aside from the obvious. She seemed to genuinely know and care about the genre movies she was presenting. Though the role required some mockery of the movies, and frankly, many of them deserved to be mocked, it came from a place of knowledge and appreciation. We'll get to know Cassandra and her love of all things B right after this. Fangoria Magazine is back and better than ever in a deluxe 100-page quarterly edition. Each issue includes set visits, deep dives, new discoveries, and minimal ads, all printed on collectible-grade paper stock that reimagines the classic magazine for a 2019 audience. You'll see familiar names like Michael Gingold and Tony Timpone, and you'll see bylines that will leave your jaw on the floor, like Barbara Crampton. And the best part, it's print only, just like the old days. Go to Fangoria.com to subscribe today. Arrow Video brings together the very best in cult and horror films from around the world, released in deluxe, definitive editions with uncut versions, newly commissioned artwork, and especially curated extras and booklets. 
The label is fast approaching its 10th anniversary and has a stunning lineup of surprises and releases scheduled in for the latter half of 2019. The Arrow Video Collection currently runs close to 400 releases, including films from the full ABCs of horror, which means Argento, Bava, Carpenter, and many more. Arrow also release a line of Arrow books, as well as Arrow Records, and they have their own podcast, the Arrow Video Podcast with Sam and Dan, hosted every other week by horror SFX guru Dan Martin and filmmaker Sam Ashurst. Visit www.arrowfilms.com to check out their latest releases, plus news of their latest podcasts and regular events, both in the UK and the US, including their headline sponsorship of Texas Frightmare in May 2019. If you're going to be in and around Atlantic City, New Jersey, I'm going to uh, be doing a couple of evening events at the New Jersey Horror Con and Film Festival at the Showboat Casino and Hotel. That's on March 29th and 30th, and I hope to see you there. So which came first, Elvira or your love of genre movies? Hmm. Elvira or the egg? <laughs> exactly. uh, who came first? Um, oh, my love of genre movies. Uh, yeah. Since I had was a child, I think I was. So this in, was real. This, this was, was something, totally yeah. real. I I I couldn't believe I'd kind of lucked into this job that was not only an acting job, and I would like make money acting instead of being a temp secretary or waitress. <laughs> but it was about stuff I loved, you know, stuff I was into. Uh, so it was like. Whoa, miracle job, dude. Plus, <laughs> I had grown up, my mother and my aunt ran a costume shop when oh, I was a kid. Wow. And I got to tell you, from the time I was, again, in about second, third grade, <clears throat> I wore more costumes than any human on earth, you know? I mean, is, isn't that kind of wacky? I mean, Halloween was our big, big holiday around my house and with all my relatives. Because wow. on Halloween, they would all, we'd all go to the store and work, you know, running costumes because it was just such a crazy time over there. So everybody would help out, even me. I don't <laughs> think I was really helping out that much. I think I was just trying more costumes on. But um, yeah, I, I, I was into that whole thing. And so you were born into it. I mean, this I was sort of your was. life. Yeah, I sort of was. But the, the movie thing happened uh, <clears throat> where I really became aware of it for the first time was when my cousin took me to a movie when I was in uh, about second grade. I was about seven or eight years old. And um, uh, it was House on Haunted Hills. Oh. I will never forget. I remember going into the theater. I remember sitting where I was. I remember how the theater looked. It was like a life-changing moment. You know, one of those things that happens, kind of like the Beatles were for me later, yes, you know? Yeah. Um, something just like smacks you in the face and you go, what the hell is this? <laughs> I'm like, eh, you know, freaking out. Um, and then even though I had nightmares nonstop for about the next two or three weeks, I begged my cousin to sneak me out and take me to another one when when it came out. And those those were when the uh, the Corman the, pictures, yeah, the Corman pictures started with the you know Edgar Allan Poe movies, right? In quotes, uh, loosely based. <laughs> yeah, uh, uh -huh. when I uh, I was on the Johnny Carson show once with Vincent Price, and he said, 
Yes, those really were po po movies. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. um, you became friends with Vincent I, Price, I did. right? Yeah. I mean, my idol, my you know. I, I met mean, him in I college. I loved him and hated yeah. him. Did you really? Yeah. Was yeah. he a doll? He was uh, unbelievable, and my grandmother actually dealt with him. She was a seamstress oh, in Hollywood. Really? And yeah, they they got to know each other. But you became wow. friends with him. We did because I had to show up everywhere. I showed up for. Years, I was giving an award to Vincent. <laughs> I was always the one that called, like, to right. hand out the award for him. Or we'd end up on every talk show. There weren't that many talk shows back then, but hmm. I think we were on The Tonight Show a couple of times together. We were on T- Tom Snyder, which was a talk show right. back then. Right, The Tomorrow Show. Uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, and so, I, I don't know, we'd show up for f- film fantastic things, mm-hmm. and we'd both be there, and... And I just got to see him and know him, and and uh, he also appeared on my show, Movie Macabre, which was like a right. freaking miracle. <laughs> he didn't charge me anything. He came oh, on the wow. show. It was, it, it was like I couldn't believe my my luck that, it, that he would actually come on the show. That's fine. We, pay, we paid nothing, you know. So of course, it was a local TV show on Channel Nine. Yeah, yeah. I was like, yeah. you know, you, you pay me. <laughs> um, but he came on, and he actually we allowed him to plug an Oscar Wilde play he was doing in uh-huh. Westwood. And we said, you plug away anything yeah, you no want, kidding. whatever. Uh, well, but he was just adorable, adorable man. Let's go back to your childhood. Okay. What, what was life like in Manhattan, Kansas? <laughs> Somebody who loved genre movies, particularly the B side of, of genre movies. Um, did you have siblings? Did you have friends who were into it? Your cousin you mentioned. Um, or was this something that you felt like an outsider because you embraced something, the gutter genre? You know? <laughs> well, first, first, first of all, by this time, uh, by the time I was in second grade, I was in Colorado Springs. Oh, okay. So you'd made I, the move. Yeah. yeah, I was born in Manhattan, but we actually lived 25 miles outside of it in, in a little town called Randolph, uh-huh. which was 330 people. I think wow. they were all my relatives. And we did, there was no movie theater hmm. or anything like that. Um, we we ended up moving to Colorado because they flooded the valley that the town was in. And so that entire town is underwater now. How great is that? <laughs> yeah, I know, right? I went back maybe 10, 15 years ago, and really? the water was really low, and you could see the church steeple, like steeple? still oh, wow. sticking out of the middle of the lake. It was kind of creepy. That's such a genre I film know, right there. I know, right? Yeah. Um, but we were in Colorado Springs by that time. My whole entire family picked up and moved there. More churches per capita than any other city Colorado in America, Springs? yes, isn't oh, it? Jesus. Yeah. Well, not when I was a kid. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that happened later. It really yeah, did. Right. Um, um, but anyway, so I was there when I found out about this movie, and uh, yeah, so I was like gobsmacked with the first movie. Then I wanted to go. I couldn't get anybody else to go with me. Mm-hmm. No one was into that. I was lucky. I just begged my cousin to take me, and he would. And he was kind of into it, but he wasn't way into it. He was more like playing army men and painting <laughs> model cars. And but it, I would beg him, and he was always really sweet with me. So he would take me. And keep it a secret from my mom and dad, too, right. who did not want me to go. Um, and no, I became so into it. I did become kind of a lonely outsider geek. I, mm. My sisters hated it, hated it. <laughs> my parents didn't like me doing it, and particularly, you know, being into the whole genre. I, I finally found some magazines, you know, that Famous were Famous monsters. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I was like... Uh, I, I couldn't believe there was a magazine about the whole thing. And I remember 
you know, pouring through it, but the greatest part of it was finding model kits in the back of like uh, the Dracula Aurora monster and, models. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, I begged for those for my birthday and for Christmas, and I actually got them from wow. some of my you know, relatives. Google and, gobble, uh, one of us. Yeah, yeah, no, and I, I was so into it, but I did not have a friend or another person that I knew that was into it with me. So I led a very lonely life. I was a total <laughs> outsider geek. Um, and, and there I was also wearing costumes to school, which really was kind of like, stay away from her, something's wrong. <laughs> well, so you were a performer at a very young age, not yeah. professionally necessarily, but you knew that you wanted to be on stage or in front of cameras, right? I did. You know, my parents made the mistake when I was about three years old of, they'd, they'd always take us to this funky little restaurant on the highway called Christos, and they would put me up on the table and make me sing How Much Is That Doggy in the Window? And people oh would throw God. coins at me. Wow. So my parents would get money, and they loved that. Yeah. <laughs> we were pretty broke. I mean, they were so farmers at the time. So you were a lower-middle-class family oh, at the time. Oh, more than lower-middle-class, yeah. I would say. And I know that feeling. Yes. Yeah. I'd go, we have yeah, similar you know, roots, I think. Just outside of poverty. Like, yeah. Trailer park trash, kind of. But... Um, yeah, we were that way. But I could make money standing on a table at a restaurant singing songs. And um, I later got to take dance lessons when I was three still, right. uh, only because we wow. knew a lady in the town that taught dance. Oh, so it reason. was comped. I yeah. think it was comped, yeah. I don't think they were paying for it, for sure. <laughs> yes. Well, um, with the coins collected under the table at the cafe. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but, oh, no, I, I knew from that minute on I wanted to be the center of attention, so always. where did it start then professionally? Was it in Las Vegas? Um, no, believe it or not, the first time I got paying gigs, I went to a contest for, do you remember this TV show called Hullabaloo? Oh, sure. Oh Feel it, that beat coming yeah. strong. Yeah, yeah I, I remember the theme remember. song. Oh, yeah. Hullabaloo, you know, was like, had go-go dancers and the little fringy dresses and yeah, the white boots. Yeah. Now, supposedly, when we were in Colorado Springs and I was like 14, they were sponsoring, the show was sponsoring a contest and at a club. So I joined the contest and... Um, how old were you at the time? Fourteen. Okay. And it, yeah, and I had to have a fringy dress, which of course my mom and my aunt made for me right away, and the go-go boots and everything. I I saved up my allowance and got those. And we were all good with that. Um, I went in and did this contest every week. It started out with like twenty something girls, and then the next week there'd be ten, and then there were four, and went down and down until I was the last finalist. I came in second. Uh, in front of this girl who wore a bikini with fringe on it. Oh, well, that's cheating. Yeah, I know. She was like in her 20s. So. Oh, Yeah, wow. it was a drag. So, but what I got out of it, I didn't get the fabulous wardrobe that she got, but I got to ride in a parade. And after that, I got a job offer at a club, a nightclub. That was a 21 nightclub in Colorado Springs, dancing in a glass cage called Club Agogo. Wow, at 14. At 14. Amazing. So I worked there every night until 2 a.m., uh, all the other girls, when they were dancing, we had sets of like four or five songs in a row, and then mm. they'd come on. So I would go in this uh, scuzzy little dressing room and uh. the sticky floor and do my homework on the floor, have a gin oh and tonic, which was <laughs> awesome. And oh, my God. <laughs> it was always so crazy. I was like, no, I, was the, I think I was drinking white Russians back then because it tasted like chocolate milk. <laughs> and uh, do my homework. My dad would come and pick me up at 2 a.m., and then I'd go wow. to school at 7 a.m. 
every wow. day. My grades went to hell, I got to tell you. I can imagine they yeah. might, Yeah, despite doing your homework <laughs> on the sticky floor. What yeah. did you get paid as a 14-year-old go-go girl in a 21 and up club? Well, it seemed like a million dollars. I don't remember the exact pay, but um, compared to all other, other teenagers at my age, I was like a millionaire. Wow. I mean, I went out and bought a, a orange and black Firebird Pontiac. First thing, oh my! I God. bought a tiny little Sony TV, which was beyond awesome to put wow. in my room, which was like ridiculous. Nobody had TVs in their room, and um, started working jobs at all kinds of other clubs, mostly uh, on. It, it's hard to believe, <laughs> mostly on uh, army bases. I worked really? at NORAD, Air wow. Defense Command base. I worked at um, the the um, what's the big. Air Force uh, Academy, uh, wow, and Fort Carson, and and Air Force. Well, Colorado space. was filled with Nothing air bases military. and military, and it was like Vietnam time. But yeah. I danced at the they were called EMT clubs, the enlisted men's clubs. Wow, and sometimes at the officers' clubs, and I made about three hundred and fifty bucks a night at that a point. A night at and fourteen, I, yes, fifteen. Yeah. Four, and this was by this time I was fifteen, and yeah. I was driving. Don't ask me why. I was like, <clears throat> how was I driving when I was fifteen? But I was. <laughs> And uh, my dad didn't have to pick me up anymore because the army base was a long way from town. Wow. Um, but still, ending you know, in the middle of the night, practically, getting home at around 2 and going to school every day. I don't know how I got through school. Well, Viva Las Vegas was a big influence for you. Is that right? It was, yeah. yeah so Anne-Margaret, kind of, Elvis Presley, and, and it took you yeah. to Las Vegas, right? It did. I, I, I went and saw that movie. I was a movie buff. I went and saw every kind of movie. I loved comedies. I loved every kind of movie, but um, especially horror movies. But I saw Viva Las Vegas, and something came over me again. It was like another kind of epiphany uh, where I just decided that's what I was going to do. It just came into my head. I didn't know what Showgirl was or anything. Mm. I knew I loved Elvis Presley because I had loved his music since I was a tiny kid. And my parents were big Elvis Presley freaks. They had wow. like, oh my God, you should have seen their basement. I mean, it's shrines to Elvis. <laughs> oh my it was God. weird. Yeah, you know, you see those weird documentaries about those kind of people. That was Elvis. mom and dad. That was my mom and dad. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Um, so I grew up like on Elvis. So I see this redhead, this sexy redheaded woman, and Margaret, who I had seen in Bye Bye Birdie previously and just right. like loved. And uh, she was with Elvis. She was a dancer in a show in Las Vegas. And I go, that is it. That is what I'm going to do. And then, you know, reality came crashing in. Everybody said to me, like, well, you're not good looking enough. You're not tall enough. Oh. You don't dance well enough. You know, all of that. And I was like, seriously? And you had taken your your Pontiac out there and <laughs> yeah, and driven out. Uh, yeah. And just went on your own. You were 16, 17 years old or something? Yeah. And, yeah, all through, from the time I was 15 till I was 17, I drove all over North Dakota, South Dakota, Nebraska, Wyoming, Playing, uh, dancing at clubs. Dancing at clubs, yeah. Wow. So how did you get these out-of-town jobs? I mean, did they hear about this great 15-year-old dancer? And... I got an agent. I got an, wow. a, a, a go-go dancing agent. <laughs> Who knew? <laughs> there was this woman in Colorado Springs, and she booked all the go-go dancing. You know, go-go dancing was a really big thing. And, you know, I have to... People have to understand, go-go dancing really was incredibly tame. I mean, right. I did it, end up wearing fringy bikinis right. after a while, but that, that's, as, that's as far as it went, you know. Um, but they were really, really popular. Every lounge, every hotel, every 
club had go-go dancers. Thanks to Shindig and Hullabaloo and all yeah, of these TV yeah. shows. Yeah. So it wasn't quite as, as scummy as it sounds. Right, it wasn't a strip club. People no, were getting the wrong idea. No, my God. No, I mean, now when you say go-go dancer, I think it has a whole different connotation. But right. back then it was really quite innocent. And, and you know, I made a ton of money. I just, I was only able to be booked out of town when it was summer or or spring vacation or Christmas vacation or whatever. But I would drive all over hell just having these doing these jobs and then you went to las vegas and became a showgirl in las I vegas did. i we were on a vacation with my mom and dad it was the last vacation i went on with them uh because i was 17 and i didn't live with my parents then anyway i had also already moved out of the house well you could afford it i could i could afford it i had an awesome apartment with it that i shared with a, a friend of mine wow. and um so i went on a vacation to california because i wanted to go to california and uh we stopped in Las Vegas, and I begged and pleaded my parents to take me in to see one of the big, you know, TNA shows when they go. Right. And uh, we went in, and the uh, maitre d' came over and asked. That, well, I I had put on a super padded bra and a giant <laughs> a wiglet that made my hair really gigantic and tall, and uh. about three pairs of eyelashes. And I mean. <laughs> You know, I either looked like I was in the show or I was a hooker. I don't know which. But <laughs> I went out with my mom and dad, and they, they came over and said, oh, are you a showgirl? And I was like, huh, no. And I was trying to be cool because I was underage. Right. Not supposed to be in there in the first place. Right. And um, scared to death. All I could do is sit there and think they're going to come in a minute and drag me out of here by my wiglet. <laughs> and um, all of a sudden, a dance captain came up, a woman named Fluff, and she said, there's an audition. Uh we're starting auditions tomorrow for a new show. Why don't you audition? And this is Viva Les Girls? Yes, it was Viva Les Girls. And I went, well, you know, this could go on forever. I went back. I got the audition uh, the next day. My parents said, are you out of your mind? You're not, you're not staying here and wow. dancing. And uh, I made their life a living hell for the next several months. I really did. Until you turned 18 when you could make it a living hell and not mine. That's right. Yeah. But I wasn't 18 when I went to do the show. I was still 17. Wow. And my parents had to sign these documents. That oh. we had to, they got a lawyer, and I signed these documents, basically signing off on me and saying I could work at the hotel. I could not enter the hotel. Wow. I could go in to, to the show, to do the show. And I was dancing topless then, you know. It, it was like a That's regular... pretty amazing. I know. Getting away you were with allowed murder. to do that. I mean, I was, but I've never heard of anybody else doing it. But Well, you were living the dream after Viva I Las was. Vegas and Elvis Presley. You not only met Elvis, but you dated Elvis. I did. It was a b very brief date. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> because remember, everyone, I was underage. Um, <laughs> yes, Elvis was a gentleman, right? He was, yeah. and he had to be because he's not stupid either. And he had a, <laughs> so many people around him watching him. It was kind of creepy, really. I bet. They were telling him when to go to bed, when to go to bed. It was just really? insane. Oh, yeah, my God. So what was some of the insight into the, the things that we might not know about Elvis that you learned from this perspective? Well, we started talking about the metaphysical, uh, and, you know, because I loved all of that, tarot cards, Ouija boards, everything. We sort of started talking about that. And he told me how he is so, so in, he was so into um, numerology. Really? And um, started writing all these code words, like with this number, and it made this word and that word in numerology. And we were just getting way into numerology and horoscopes and stuff. Really? And, yeah, and he and wrote mysticism? this all down. I have the information he has on the back of an envelope uh, from wow. him to his dad, Vernon Presley. 
So wow. I still have that letter, and I got it. I got it. Um, what's the word? Authenticated. It, yeah, yeah, yeah. By by the Elvis Presley. Uh, what do you well, call it? Yeah. It's authenticated because he gave it to you. He wrote it down. For yeah, you. yeah, I know. So so I mean that was an interesting thing. People wouldn't. Uh, think of about him, the, especially the thing, because of the Nixon relationship and everything. Yes, that was he showed kind me his surprising. fabulous uh, his badge Nixon belt. Oh, He'd given right. him with a giant belt buckle and everything. He was oh. so proud of it, so happy. Uh, Nixon, nobody knew he was that scummy yet. He was still, you know, right? Yeah, <laughs> that hadn't happened at, at yeah. that point. <laughs> yeah, um, but Elvis was also. Uh, very, very much against drugs, and of course, this is what people—they don't believe me, but I think anybody that knows about show business understands how you're tired, so they give you uppers. You're sleepy, so they—I mean, you, you, can't you can't go to sleep, sleep at, at night, night yeah. so they yeah. give you downers. And but it's all prescribed by a doctor, so mm. it's all fine. So it's all good. Yeah. Yeah, but he laid into me when I told him I had done. Um, LSD and marijuana. Oh. oh my God! He flipped out. Flipped out. He was like my wow. dad. He was like, "Don't ever do drugs again. Drugs will ruin your life. It'll ruin your career. If you want to be something in show business, stop right now." You know? Well, he was right about himself. Yeah. I know. Hmm. Sad. That's sad, isn't it? But really? people get the wrong impression. I mean, you know, it's happened. It happened with Judy Garland. It happened with Michael Jackson. Yeah. It happened with yep. you could name a hundred other people. Yeah. They're not drug addicts. They are. Yep. Yeah. But they're managed by a group of people who are telling them what to do, when to do it, make money off of you, or making money off of you. And I mean, Amy. Um, Winehouse. Winehouse. Yeah. That yeah. was the saddest. Well, that twenty-seven club. All. all these twenty-seven-year-olds, from Kurt Cobain to Jimi Hendrix to yeah. Janis Joplin to. I actually interviewed Hendrix and Joplin back oh in my, my old rock. I met uh, Jimi Hendrix. Journalism. Yeah. Well, yeah. you were a singer in a band. I was, but I, I met Hendrix at the Denver Pop Festival. Oh, wow. And oh, my God, we had a really fun time. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yes. Oh, the rock awesome. stars and Cassandra oh. Peterson. Yeah, oh, I know. This no, is I, I a story a big, that's not told often. As not. I was a big groupie, but um, <laughs> I was, I'm actually going right after this to see my friend Pamela DeBar. Oh, who wow. Is the ultimate wow. groupie, but yeah, no she kidding. always calls me the virgin groupie because uh, I was. I was a virgin until I was 19. So I was having a hard time being a, being a groupie. <laughs> but but it's, it all worked out. And I met so many awesome musicians. Wow. And well, back to Las Vegas <laughs> through Elvis. What was the next step? Uh, was this going to Europe with the band or? Yeah, I mean, Elvis is the one who said, you have to get out of this town. Las Vegas is no place for a young girl. And I said, but this is my dream. You know, I mean, yeah. I made it. And it was all because of you. And, wow. and he said, you got to get out of here. This is not your dream. You will be, you know, old and then no, you know, you'll be replaced by younger girls. There won't be a place to go. You'll be dealing cards. You'll be a bartender. You know, you, mm. you don't want to stay here. There's nowhere to go from here if you're that. And I was really depressed about it for a while, but oh. he uh, he and I actually sang together on the piano while he played the piano. Wow. And we sang, and I was doing some harmony, and he said, you have a decent voice. Why decent don't you voice. get voice lessons? Uh -huh. I think you could really, you know, sing, maybe go into singing instead of this. And wow. I, I went the next day, and I got singing lessons. Really? I mean, next really? freaking day. I was like, I'm there. But... I always tell people, if it, if it hadn't been for Elvis, I was the youngest showgirl in Las Vegas. I would now be the oldest showgirl in Las Vegas because <laughs> I truly believed that I had hit the pinnacle of show business right. fabulosity, and that was where I was going to stay. 
So, but then you became a musician. Did you play an instrument before? I, I did not. I didn't. I know. I, I sadly, I never learned it. I played the piano as a child, but mm-hmm. I never uh, practiced enough. But your voice became your instrument, and it, it did. took you. Is that how you went to Europe, or you went to Europe and then joined a band there, or how, how did that work? Um, when I was in Viva La Girls, my contract was coming up. There were two dancers who were my very best friends at the time. Uh, Two gay men. Uh, they were called uh, Vest and Clark, and they they've been in a million movies that you've seen. I'm sure as d- dancers like Sweet Charity and Oh yeah, uh, with oh Georgina Spelvin. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, yes. they they've been in everything and have yeah. done a lot of theater. <clears throat> and they were leaving to go do the Lido de Prairie in in Paris, and my contract was coming up. That, that was the end of the year, and they. I said, come with, come with us, and we'll get you a job in Alito. And I was like, sounds good to me. So oh, I wow. went with them, and, and um, we all moved in together, and I started rehearsals at the Alito, and um, it became really, really awful and really depressing. By then I was about oh. uh, 19, mm-hmm. I think, and the girls there made my life kind of a living hell. But first of all, they didn't like Americans mm-hmm. back then. Secondly, they think they were very threatened because most of the dancers in the show were closer to 30. Mm-hmm. And they you were ganged this fresh, up on young me. American. They made fun of me. They, it was just it made, really horrible, horrible until, until I finally said, I can't do this. I, I've just, you know. So you I turned started, away from dancing because yeah. of that? Uh, not dancing forever. I did go on to do quite a few shows after that back in back in L.A. and right. worked even on TV as a dancer. I worked on the Tony Orlando and Don show oh, wow. and Sonny and Cher show, mm. dancing. But, um, but then I left that, and, I, and uh, one of the other showgirls from Viva La Girls came over to visit them. She and I got this crazy idea of going to Italy, which was really what I wanted to do was go to Italy. I loved uh, Italy, okay. and I had been there when I was a teenager on a, supposedly on a... a Oh, what was it? Art his history tour. Oh, good. Yeah. Yes. Like wink, tour wink. Of hot guys. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, <laughs> but I, uh, I went back uh, with her. We decided we'd form a singing duet, duo, uh, duo. So we made a little duo. We got this Brazilian guitar player and started playing clubs. Wow. And from that, I got this other band. I did a, a bunch of little acting. But I worked in a bunch of. Uh, um, Horror movies and and westerns and ones and that Fellini's we would Roma. know. Hmm? Ones that we would know. No, unless you know Brando Marte di Petriolo or Leonorevole Piacino alla Donna. Oh, that's one of my favorites. <laughs> oh, I know. Yeah. Okay. Love that. Yeah. <laughs> Love that. <laughs> yeah, no, they were all all uh, like just little films. I don't even think the first one ever got made, but but I got to work as an extra and I. Worked as an extra in Fellini's Roma, which was right. life changing. Right, that's a whole long story. The other Roma. Well, uh, no, tell us a little bit about uh, it, what effect Roma had on you working with Fellini. Well, it was really the weirdest thing. I, I'm there with my friend, who's also from Viva La Girls. Another friend of ours, another showgirl, came over and joined us. She lived in Corsica. She came over and joined us, and we were walking down the street in the area of Rome called Trastevere. It's like the old section. Yes, I can't believe yeah. it. Everything's old. This is really old. <laughs> yes. And uh, we saw like a big kind of hubbub going on up ahead. And like, what's happening up there? And I went up and they were shooting a movie. And I'd 
I hadn't really, you know, seen anybody shooting a movie outside before. So it was very interesting. We're like, oh, my gosh, it's great. And we see a guy that we all three know from Las Vegas in the middle of, like, in the crew. Oh, and we're wow. like, this has got to be a joke. Stuart Birnbaum. <laughs> and we knew him from Las Vegas because he had made a documentary about showgirls. And he had interviewed all three of us. Uh. So we saw this guy and went, oh, my God, Stuart. He couldn't believe it. We were like. You know, truly small world. So small world, and uh, he was there doing some kind of student directing thing with Fellini on this film. And he said, "Would you like to meet Mr. Fellini?" And we're like, "What?" <laughs> and, and you, uh, as a film buff, oh God, really? I knew those movies. Did your girlfriends know? Oh about yeah, Fellini? they did yeah. too. They, okay. uh, La Dolce Vita and right. Eight and a Half, and I mean these films. I was already a huge Fellini fan. And and they they were aware. I don't know if they were as big a fan as I was, but they were certainly aware of those right. films. And um, he came over. He introduced himself. He was so charming, so nice, adorable. He was just the nicest man. And he thought I looked like his wife. He couldn't get over that oh. I looked like Julie, Julieta Messina, right? His right. wife when she was really young, who was in so many of his movies. Yeah, yeah. I guess she was kind of his muse or something. Right. And I wasn't really aware of that or how I that I looked like her. Mm-hmm. But he, he met us, went away, and a few minutes later, Stuart came over and said, "Would you, would you girls want to be extras on the movie?" <laughs> we were mm. like, oh, "What? Oh my God! Nah. No, no, no! I think we're busy. we're busy. We have to go get a cappuccino." <laughs> um, so he uh, he got us uh, um, went to a trailer. Next thing, we were dressing up in these gowns and having our hair all fixed up. And we were in a scene where there was a big boxing match in the middle of a piazza. And we were sitting around it screaming like, kill him, kill him. Wow. And uh, from there, uh, I kept getting work. Uh, Maria actually went back to Corsica to take care of her mom. Sonny moved back to the U.S. And I wanted to stay. So I got a, a job as an extra for like about one month, about 30 days. And, you know, it was hardly any money or anything, but it paid for my pension. And, and you discovered and movies food. from the inside. I now. did. And it was so freaking fascinating. And and uh, it was such a wonderful experience. And I got to see all of Rome because every time we did a scene, it would be like in front of the Piazza di Spagna or Trevi Fountain or right. the, some spectacular visual yeah, yeah. location. And we yeah. were traveling all around. I got to work out at Cina Città, which wow. is the big, biggest film um, film studio, studio in, in Europe. Europe. Yeah, yeah. And I still got to, is. I got yeah. to have lunch I, and meet out there Michael Caine and Tony Curtis, and it was just insane. You'd go out there, and these people were there. It was just like, oh god. Did that change your direction? Did you want to be part of movies after that? I did. I did. I thought someday I'm. I think, you know, I want to work on being an actress, but immediately I had to make money. So I somehow I met someone through these people. It was a a very famous songwriter named Memo Remigi, Hmm. believe it or not. (laughs) You'd actually know some of his songs. And he he said, I have some friends that have a band, and they had an American girl singer, and she just got married and quit, and they are looking for another singer. And he said... You Your timing is impeccable. I know. It's <laughs> yes. crazy, right? Yeah. So I got this gig with a band and traveled around with them for like a year, just um, three, four day gigs all over Italy. Did you forget and about acting at that time? Um, no, I really kind of I, I forgot about the acting. I yeah. was like, I got so a gig. Was, I'm in Italy. You're a singer now. <clears throat> yeah. I'm a singer. This is what I'm going to do. And it was really a silly kind of pop band thing doing doing English. 
doing Italian versions of American songs. Ah, okay. And uh, but uh, the pay was quite good. They, they were they were pretty popular. I mean, they played one, two, three night gigs, and uh, one night we were the opening uh, act for. Um, uh, oh, good Lord, his name just... Herbie Hancock. Oh, wow. I mean, which wow. was pretty awesome. Jazz so, legend, yeah. Yeah, I mean, oh, he's fantastic. <clears throat> I loved him. And um, anyway, so, I mean, he still is fantastic. Um, sound like it was in the past. But <laughs> yes. anyway, it, it was a yeah. real adventure and everything. And I've, I've, I finally... I finally, one night, I, we were playing at the Casino de San Remo up on the rooftop, and it was kind of fabulous. And my parents had come over to, to see me and to visit me and they uh, had like they were still paying that credit card bill off when they <laughs> passed away i swear to god they you know oh, they god. just took every penny they had came wow. over to see the show and um uh i got so homesick and the same day i found out that myself and the other female singer were being paid half of what the guys were being paid. oh my god and you were making a living doing this i was making a pretty good living yeah. but I, wow. we found out from the club owner the, the guys were getting double wow. of what she and I were getting paid. And we were like the front men. Yeah, the, people were there to see you, not the they guys really playing were. the I mean, the guys yeah. were very, very good musicians, that's for sure. And I, I adored them, but that was kind of a, I don't know. So that I was, was a revelation. Like, here. Did that put an end to your band? Well, I, I heard about it, and I uh, walked out of the door on the break, went down the elevator, Told my parents to meet me at my hotel, loaded up a taxi cab with my stuff, and left. And you went back home to LA? They're probably still wondering when I'm coming back from my break. <laughs> <laughs> it was like 1970, <laughs> I don't know, 76, I don't know what it was. So you went to LA from there? I, no, I went back to my to Colorado to stay with my wow. parents because they didn't have a job or anything anymore. Right. And uh, that doesn't work out very well. I stayed there for a few weeks, and I was. Uh, I wouldn't out. think so. No, and uh, not once the girl has left the farm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then you're <laughs> back there with your parents telling you to you're staying out too late and everything. Did not, <laughs> not work at work. all for no. ten minutes. Um, but a friend of mine, the, the director, the the choreographer from Viva La Girls, called me out of the blue and said, "I've got another show. It's in Miami Beach at the Playboy Club, and wow. do you want to be in that show?" And I said, yes, what time does it start? I'm, I'll be there right now. So any thoughts of acting during this time, or had you put that to rest because you were doing so well as a yeah, performer? Yeah, I hadn't really thought about the acting anymore. And, mm-hmm. and uh, that kind of came when the show finished in in um, uh, Miami. Mm-hmm. I think it was about six months long, and I made a lot of money, which I socked away because I was a singer and a lead nude, right. it was called, for this show. So I really made quite a lot of money. I mean... Over a thousand dollars, which doesn't sound that mm-hmm. great, but then it was in nineteen seventy, whatever. Yeah, yeah. It was, wow. I was like, really? I thought I was rich. I, you know, I was, that might be the only time in my entire life that I thought I was rich. <laughs> I, now, thinking back on it, um, <clears throat> but yeah, that hasn't really happened again. Um, <laughs> but I fell in love with this guy that was in the show, and he asked me to come back to L.A. with him and and live with him. So I did, and. L.A. was not somewhere I really had wanted to go. I, right. I don't know. It was... Even though it was Hollywood, even though it was movies, it didn't represent what you wanted to be doing at that time? Yeah, and I had gone there, uh, like I said, when our vacations to California with my parents, and and it was so smoggy back then. You know, when yeah. it, it was like the... Uh, like 
late fifties, early sixties. You can see her. Yeah. You can see a block away, and it was. Oh, I remember just having my chest so congested and painful from breathing that smog. Yeah. And your eyes would run with tears. Really, it was yeah. amazing. Yeah. I mean, I remember you could not. You would look across the street and almost couldn't see yeah. a building that was too far away. You'd have smoggy fog where you couldn't see your hand held out yeah. in front of People you. People don't I was, realize I that little. how yeah. bad it was, but it was wasn't just that. It was also that. My mom always was down in really, really horrible areas of town buying fabric for her costume uh, shop. Okay. And so it also wasn't seeing the nice part of L.A. I was no. seeing like the ew, really seamy, kind of scary. And there's plenty of scary. Lula in L.A., yeah. Yeah. especially in the 70s. Yeah, and 60s. so L.A., I was kind of scared of it. It was so mm-hmm. big, you know. I'd never really lived in a gigantic city, so I was... Well, what took you into the Groundlings? This was an improvisational troupe that's still going strong. And you became a part of that as well as many other famous comedians and performers. Yeah. How did uh, that come about? A a friend of mine invited me to go see them. And another one of those moments where I just saw them on stage and went, that is what I want to do. That's what I want to do. And... uh, I took a real long way around because I joined a group called Mama's Boys, and we went touring, but we did a lot of comedy. We did dancing, singing, and comedy, and it was the gay disco days, so I, it was right. me and seven gay men, and we toured every major city in the country. Was that when you discovered you wanted to do comedy in your performance? Because that's become such a huge part of your onstage persona. Yeah, it kind of was, although I did a comedy number in Viva La Girls. I did ah. actually really, it was kind of the, became kind of the highlight of the show, this comedy number. And when I did that, that thought got in my head about doing comedy. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, then here I was doing doing this, you know, other co- comedy thing with the, with the guys. We were doing right. sketches in between mm-hmm. and commercials that we'd do fake commercials that were funny and... And that's when I really, really fell in love yeah, with doing comedy and decided to move in that direction and to get in the groundlings and to give up taking these damn tours. I had been <laughs> on tour for my whole life. Right. And I was kind of like, I just want to live somewhere. It's tough for a woman. I mean, it's tough for a guy. Yeah. yeah. I think for a girl. You don't end up with a boyfriend or don't end up with a, anything. Well, you with know? a home. Really you you got a suitcase in the trunk of the car. You yeah. do, and that is it. And and it was, you know, I I loved doing all those shows, but it finally I was just like, I got to stop. I got to stay somewhere and decide I'm going to do something here. And no matter what, I'm not taking off on another show. <laughs> and you found the Groundlings, and they yeah. found you. Yeah. And... Tell me about that experience and what that was like, because this is all about creating stories and characters on the spur of the moment, and how that kind of helped train you as a as a performer. Yeah, it, you know, it's funny. Back then, now it's so hard to become a groundling because they've got so many zillions of people wanting to get into it because mm. they've been so incredibly successful. I mean, so many groundlings have gone on to make movies and be writers and directors and on Saturday Night Live and... Yeah. Everything, as you know, and and uh, so they have a million people trying to get in. Back then, it's pretty much you paid the money, you became a groundling. You mm-hmm. know, really, it was. I mean, you did have to go through an audition process. So it, maybe I had a little talent. They let me. You know, <laughs> oh, maybe I, I think maybe yeah, just a little. But it was but, it but was pretty easy compared to 
that. And but a lot of people become groundlings, become a part of it by having been taking the classes, the improvisation classes. Yes, and I did take the classes. Mm-hmm. I had to take the classes. Then I had to be in the Sunday show, which was kind of the not the major groundlings. And then I moved up into the regular groundlings. I saw the groundlings on stage during that period. So did I'm you really? sure I saw you. And it was probably. It was I was there with uh, Phil Hartman, yeah. Paul Rubens. Um, Herman, Lorraine yes. Newman was just leaving to go do Saturday Night Live. Yeah, I definitely saw you then. Yeah, and, yep. and I was right just as I was leaving. John Lovitz and um, Julia Sweeney were coming in. Yeah, and it was yeah, it was a great time. It was I mean, a factory a that ground out famous people. It was, <laughs> it was quite crazy. amazing, talented, famous, people. and not just actors, but so many producers and so many uh, writers that are that yeah. wrote big, big television shows and films, you know. How did that help you to form the character of Elvira? Well, I... Uh, how did it help? You know what? One thing is that's awesome about improv is that you learn to perform in front of people and you, you don't even know what's going to come up yet, but you drop all of your inhibitions. Not that I had any at that time. But you, you are, you, you're, you feel certainly. I mean, it's like I always say: if you can get through performing on stage when you do not know what you're going to do and try to make people laugh and entertain, you can just do anything. Yeah. I mean, you really can. I mean, and it gave me that spur of the moment. Think on your feet, uh, kind of thing. I mean, that's what I learned. I know I would. I could not be Elvira without that training that I got from from comedy improv. And I wasn't the biggest character person. Right. Um, I would, well, my characters were the sexy girl, the hooker, <laughs> the showgirl, <laughs> you know, the, hmm. the sexy nurse. I, would, I was always, I was kind of like the groundling sex symbol. But was that your choice? Or did you kind of get painted kind of into it? I fell into it, you yeah, know? They, yeah. they just kept putting me in those roles. And You'd been the showgirl. Yeah. And I was yeah. comfortable with that. And, and it, it made me stand out, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, I had my own little niche. There was always, you know, I was always Phil's girlfriend and his chick hazard sketch or right. the, the gun mall, you know, or the whatever was the... The sexy girl. The, that kind of person. So yeah. it was my own little niche that I uh, used. So I wasn't doing all these crazy, wacky characters where I was an old lady or I was this or that. It was pretty much all of that. Um so was it during this time when Channel 9 opened up auditions for a new horror hostess? It was. After I'd been in the Groundlings for four and a half years, it, it was funny. My best friends were Phil and Paul Rubens and John Paragon. And mm. we spent every every day of our life together back then. And um, we all started sort of getting more and more gigs together. Right. Phil was a little ahead of me. Then came Paul. Then came me, then came John Paragon. Uh, but we were all starting to get kind of famous at the same time. And so we really, really hung out with each other and stuck together because we sort of couldn't believe what was going on. Right. And You uh, were in Hollywood, and the Hollywood thing was starting to happen. Yes. I mean, Phil bought a house, you know. <laughs> it was like, what is happening here, you know? Yeah. Um, John moved out of his garage apartment and actually got a real life apartment. And, <laughs> and we all were, I, I think it was a real bonding thing for us mm-hmm. uh, that made us, it made us so, so close because we were like, really, you know, oh my God, I was just a plain old person. Now I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be a famous person. Um, and so then so, 
KHJ, which is an independent station in LA. It's not a network affiliate. Um, they were looking for a host after Seymour, uh, Larry Vincent passed away. Yep. So did you seek them out? Did they come to you because of having seen you in the Groundlings, or how did that happen? Well, I was on my honeymoon oh. in Aspen, Colorado, and uh, my one of my best friends, a, a woman named Donna Kaufman, called me up and said, Cassandra, there's this guy that I know, uh, Larry, and he's the director of the Seymour show, mm-hmm. and I had seen that. Um, and he is looking for a new horror host, and he wants a sexy, funny girl. And I told him, you were exactly that. And you know, it's really strange to say, but comedy did not go with, you know, I mean... Sexy and sexy comedy. Sexy or yeah. kind of good-looking. If, mm-hmm. if you were a comedian back then, you were like Toady Fields or, you know... Right. Joan Rivers before her facelift, or, you know, <laughs> Phyllis Diller. Right. You had to look goofy. You really did. Right, right. So, it wasn't the beautiful woman who was expected to be have the yeah. comic timing. And the, now there's millions of them. Right. I'm so happy. Yeah. Because then it was you were either good-looking and sexy, or you were funny, but you could not be both. It was mm-hmm. just some kind of weird law. And so you smashed that door wide open. I kind of did. And, he, yeah. and Larry had seen me at, at the Groundlings. Strangely enough, he'd see, and he went, yes, 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 I, I want her. And um, Great. I came back, I still had to audition, but they're a pretty crazy audition thing, which they didn't tell me to wear a costume, and I got in there, and everybody was dressed oh, in dear. black with fangs and black wigs, and I had a little turquoise dress on and red <laughs> hair, and I was like, oh my God. It was like showing up at a costume party. And Well, then you must have kicked ass, because you did it without the drag. I did it without the dragon. I did it without the script because mm. the script was horrible. I mean, it was, uh, I'm sure they had dug it out of, honestly, some old box of vampire scripts or something right, from the 50s. Right. And mm. and it was like all the, you know, come in, darling, drink a glass of blood. Oh, look at the moon. Blah, 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 you know. So you improved your own. I just improved. I and just, you were well prepared to improv. I was. They told me what it was kind of about with the movie was about I'd be talking about and I just kind of improvised. So you got the audition from that or did you have to come back and I, nope, figure I got out it the costume? That. I right. got it. He came running out of the audition slapped me on the shoulder and said you have to part. And I was like oh my god what do I do now? I wasn't like <clears throat> over the moon thrilled. I thought it was awesome because it was horror but it wasn't like I was going to make a fortune. Right. So it wasn't I had just Almost gotten the role of Ginger on the new remake of Gilligan's Island. Right. That would have been awesome. I mean, that would have been <laughs> on a national network. There you go. Making who knows how much money a week. Right. And I came, like, by the skin of my teeth, I didn't get that role, and I was just <laughs> devastated. So now I was working on local TV, making, I think it was three, 350 a, a week. But Before taxes. The remake of Gilligan's Island didn't last very That's long, That's right. The remake of Gilligan's <laughs> Island lasted one uh, the pilot, and that was that. <laughs> yeah, that was it. One <laughs> so show. So it was like, phew. And you know, if I had taken that and gone, uh, if I had gotten it, they shot it in, it was called Gilligan's Island versus the Harlem Globetrotters. Oh, yes. Okay, for starters. And they, <laughs> Sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> I know. There's <laughs> a coupling I want to see. <laughs> I just wanted to be Ginger. I didn't care what the hell the name was. I I was so in love with, with uh, uh, Gilligan's Island. When I was just not Marianne. Yeah. You no, know, oh, God, not Marianne. No, oh, you. Sh- uh, I just was like grow, growing up going, that's what I want to be, you know, her or Anne Margaret or one of those sexy redheads. Nice. Um, so when when uh, 
when I got called in on the 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 if if I would have gone with Gilligan's Island where they shot in Hawaii, that would have been it. I wouldn't have gotten yeah. the part, and then Gilligan's Island would have crashed Tanked. after yeah. one thing, and then I'd be nowhere. So it all worked out for the best. I was so depressed when I didn't get it, but. Yeah. It was like, phew. Well, you were able to bring along John Paragon uh, yeah. to to write for you and yeah. with you for the show and your husband who uh, did he do the theme then. music? Um, he did the music uh, for as it. Well. Yeah, he did uh, Elvira's theme. John and I watched every single movie multiple, multiple, multiple times, came up with all the jokes. Then he went home, wrote the script. Um, and you loved the movies. I loved the movies. And I had seen so many of them. And, and you know, they were just completely up my alley. There were some that I didn't love, some uh, that got into a little more like the slasher yeah. genre. That was well, it was the thing. 80s, so that was yeah, just was creeping in pretty bad. Yeah, and yeah. some of the late 70s, but like one that really stuck out was uh, Peeping Tom. Have you ever heard of that movie? Uh, the British one? Ooh, yeah, the, the, yeah. By the same guy that did The Red Shoes. Yes, which exactly. I love. Yeah, it's, Peeping a, it's a masterpiece. Tom was creepy. And it was and a it was masterpiece. on your show? Yes. That's a hard one to do comedy bits around. Very yeah. hard one to do comedy. <laughs> and that would be a problem, you know. There would be yeah. those shows where you really didn't want to... Michael Powell. Yeah. Make, yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. It was a brilliant movie if Great anybody film. can see it. But it's... Uh, yeah. There were movies that you didn't really want to joke. Didn't want to tinker about. with no. them. Yeah. I like the old... Like the old... All the old canon movies and a lot the Hammer oh, yeah. movies and all of those. Yeah. You know? But um, Killer Tomatoes was a favorite of yours? It was a favorite of the audience, not a favorite of mine. Because, again, they had done all the jokes were in the movie. Yeah, how do you make fun of a a comedy? It was a spoof. And, yeah, you were were trying to make jokes about, you know, you could only make so many ketchup and tomato sauce jokes. (laughs) Yes, exactly. And they were all in the movie already. So, you know, there was no place to go. When you were very young, you had a terrible accident that scalded a good portion of your skin you, yep. you you scalding water do you think that had anything to do with your attraction to the darker genre i definitely do i was yeah. reading something about someone else recently um well kane hodder for one mm-hmm. uh mm-hmm. he was burned much much later in life but i was reading about somebody else who had had an accident and i was actually called by kids monster Laughed at, pointed at, made fun Tell of. Tell me what happened and how old you were. Um, I was only a year and a half. I was almost two years old, and uh, my mother was boiling Easter eggs in this big oh my God. black kettle that she had, like a witch. I'm not kidding. My, I know because my mom had that kettle forever. Mm. Um, and she was outside painting the eggs with my cousin, and I was inside climbing around on a chair, apparently. And started to fall, and I grabbed the kettle. I, I got up, I guess, to look. The eggs were boiling and making mm-hmm. a noise. So I got up to look in the kettle. I started to fall, and I grabbed the kettle and pulled it over on me. Oh, my God. So 35% of my body uh, had to be skin grafted. And they really, really didn't think I was going to live because back then, in 19, that was 1953, um, if you were burned over 20 25% of your body, you generally didn't survive because of the wow. infection. And they had this new thing. I didn't die for the first two days, so they moved me to a big um, cancer burn center in Kansas City mm. and started just filling me up with this brand new thing, penicillin. Oh, my God. Yeah, and it was experimental. I To this day, penicillin doesn't do anything. Uh, really? No. Because I, I you were so overloaded at that so age. So overloaded with, with it, penicillin yeah. that it has no effect on me whatsoever. They give me... 
I, I, hundreds and hundreds of units. They didn't know how much you, you had, but it did the trick anyway. And but then, you were scarred as a child, and, and people treated you differently? Oh, yeah. Your, your classmates and the like, what was that like? It was horrible. I mean, it's, I, I became very much a loner. I mean, it's no... I just think of that, and I go, I really don't think it's any wonder I got into horror. Mm. And and stories about monsters and the other, yeah? Yeah. I mean, I, I related. I definitely related to that. Being scared. I mean, literally, kids would laugh and point at me and call me monster. You're wow. a monster. You know? And I'd be like, ugh. You know, I don't know. One of those things. I think, I think a lot of people in um, show business, especially in, in comedy had a lot of those kind of things happen and not necessarily that they look like a monster but I don't think I know a single comedian friend who when they were a kid wasn't overweight or had terrible acne or was gay and didn't know it got called a sissy Mm -hmm. Um, so they're looking for an acceptance by becoming a performer Yes, and and you feel so you're so alone and so out of it. And then if you kind of act funny or goofy, you can make people like you. Um, yeah, it was you know I don't know. I think it's very complicated. I don't go off and sound like a psychologist here, but it's no, but pretty it's common. It, you know, all of the all of the horror fans and the people who make it seem to come from a similar place. They weren't really the popular kid in do. high school, and yep. and it's very much a theme that comes up on this show a lot of being the outsider and feeling a part of what the horror story is about. Yep. Yeah. And I, I actually, I am thankful that that, that burn happened to me. I mean, yeah. I always thought growing up, it was just like, oh, why'd that happen? I, you know, so sorry for myself. As I got older, I thought this may have been the best thing that ever happened to me. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I honestly, I mean, my sisters lived their lives out in Colorado Springs, not really doing much, you know. Um, right. And you became Elvira. Now, yeah. was that blessing and curse? Because you certainly didn't expect your career to be Elvira for decades. No, God, no. I had no idea that. I didn't even know what a horror host was, first of all, <laughs> until they, you know, I had seen Seymour just like a time or two, and I didn't mm-hmm. really get what it was, but I mostly saw him because I wanted to watch the movies. Right. And I was kind of like, what's this guy doing talking around? You know, Quinn interrupting that? my movie. Yeah, yeah, and I wasn't in L.A. that much. I, like I said, I was on the road 99% of the time. So I had seen him, but I didn't get the, I, I, I didn't understand what the horror host thing was or was about when I got the job. I really didn't. Right. And he, they were talking to me about Vampire, and I, I was completely like, who the hell is Vampire? And she was in the 50s, and, and yeah, Mayla Yeah, when I was Nuri, born. Her first show was the year I was born. Wow. And that yeah. was on Channel 7. Yep. And she later did move to Channel 9, but for like three months. Right. Did you know that? Yeah. But um, Mayla Nuri, uh, Normie, who played yeah, her. Yeah, Mayla Nurmi. Um, she had a lawsuit against Elvira because <laughs> she felt she was being ripped off. Uh, yeah. How did that experience feel? What, what went on? Well, it was, um, I mean, it was really, really serious and frivolous and, and kind of sad for her because they wanted to call me Vampira. When, after I got the job, they said, we want to name you Vampira. And, oh. but, and I was... That would have been a bigger problem. <laughs> yes. Wouldn't it? Can you imagine? Yeah. yeah. But the thing was that they get this call from a lawyer who says, I represent this actress, Milo Nermi, and she owns the name Vampira. 
which she really didn't. I mean, mm-hmm. she'd never had, had it trademarked, all that. She was hired to play it. Yes, yeah. she was hired to play it. And, and, and the, the thing is, through that process, they offered her money to use the name and the like, the look. Mm-hmm. And she said, no, no way. Uh-huh. Um, she didn't want me to play the part. She, strangely, she wanted Lola Falana to play the part. Oh, I'll never yes. get over that. I, I don't know. This is a name that I don't <laughs> it's know. It's like an SCTV it. name, right? <laughs> yeah. This is so crazy. But anyway, she was just not down with any of it. She didn't want me to play it. She didn't want the name to be used or anything. So right when we were shooting the first show, we had to come up with another name. And I'm like, I was couldn't care less. I was like, all right, all right, all right, give me another name. And we all wrote down names. Everybody, when I say we all, it was the crew right. and me, and wrote names and put them in a coffee can. I pulled one. It was Elvira. I went, what the hell? That sounds like a country <laughs> western star. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't know. But I was like, whatever. You're paying me. Whatever the name is. Um, and my friend at the time, who had been in Mama's Boys with me, my very best friend, Robert Redding, mm-hmm designed the he and i came up with a look because when i got the job they told us to come in with a costume they they wanted to be sexy but of course it had to be spooky mm-hmm. and our first thing people always get this confused that i wanted to that, that was going to be the character but i i had this idea of making it look kind of like um sharon tate in the fearless vampire killers mm-hmm. because in the movie she had long red curly hair and right. um she was kind of it was kind of a dead girl look with hmm. pale skin and dark circles under the eyes and pale lips and but the long hair and then the kind of a see-through right. sheer ghosty looking dress and when we walked in there the the manager of the station and everything no nah, no nah, you have to be all in black if you're going to do scary stuff <laughs> yeah we black. all know that yeah, yeah. god how That's stupid obvious. was i so we were, went back to the drawing table, literally the drawing table, because Robert was an artist, uh-huh. and he drew a picture. And we, you know, they wanted it to look like Vampire, but not too much, because she it was suing us. <laughs> yes. And Good um, reason. but I mean that vibe. I mean, like Morticia Evans, like right. like Lily Munster, like mm-hmm. like any any woman female in that kind of genre. You know, right. they wanted it to have that vibe. But looked different. So Robert did a whole '80s kind of '80s punk spin on it, which right. was like happening then. The whole, you know, new wave music and everything. Mm-hmm. And the little studs and leather and the hair he got from uh, his favorite artist was Ronnie Spector of the Ronettes. Wow! He's, so that's where that yeah. bouffant thing came from. Yeah, and he from. called it a wow. knowledge bump. He said that's what she <laughs> called it. She called it a knowledge bump. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, people go, "Do you have a beehive?" I go, "No, it's a knowledge bump." Oh God, I should have known yeah, better. God. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, so that's how he did the hair. He based it on her, and wow. um, the makeup he got right out of a book of kabuki makeup. At, oh wow! And uh, th- that he he had been playing a character, um, one of the three witches in. Uh, Macbeth. Macbeth, wow. And he had been playing one of the three witches, and he had done that makeup on himself. Wow. And that he found in this kabuki book and said, we should do your makeup like that. And I go, fine with me, whatever. Wow. And then uh, that was that. We went out there in that crazy getup. Well, before we wrap it up, I know yeah, that wow. you have been able to turn the popularity of Elvira into uh, helping causes, particularly animal rights and the like, PETA yeah, and things you. like that. Um, tell me a little bit about how you've worked with them and, and how you've been able to, to support that. Well, for a long time, um, 
I mean, it's been a long time. I, I, I actually began by meeting a guy who was dressed as Joan Crawford when I was hosting a costume contest for the opening of the movie The Thing. I on set Hollywood that Boulevard. up. I was in publicity at Universal at that time. Oh, my God. Yes, I set that up. That was one of the most insane gigs I ever did. And That's what Pat came to, yeah. That is amazing. And, and, you know, I got the impression that they were waiting for like 10 people to show up. I don't know if you remember. Hundreds. I remember very well. Wasn't it at the Pacific Theater, maybe, or... it was, yeah, it was right down by the Groman's Chinese. Yeah, it theater. was the Pacific Theater. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah. I stood up on that little stage, yeah. uh, talking to one after another. I mean, hundreds. It went forever. Yeah. And uh, the guy that won, it was I don't know if you remember, it was a six foot seven tall guy, uh, dressed as Joan Crawford. And he was beating a little exorcist girl with a wire hanger. (laughs) And she was like dressed as Linda Blair. Wow, that's great. And uh, I picked them. I got to pick the winner, and they won. And years later, this guy is one of the heads of PETA. Wow. And I meet with him. And, you know, I loved animals and had had animals my whole life. Every animal you can think of, I'd rescue. And... uh, I mean, skunks, really, squirrels, mm. raccoons, skunks, snakes, lizards. You, you can't believe it. Yeah. Um, but he told me kind of about, you know, I never put two and two together about the stupidest thing, like fur, like, like wearing fur. You're killing an animal. Duh. Yeah. You know, you just don't think cruelty and stuff. Somehow you think it just, uh, they take it off and give it to you. I don't know. And eating them. Here you go. Yeah, eating them. And the, the whole thing, you know, he, he explained it. I really understood for the first time it's hard to believe that i was that stupid naive um but he got me kind of sucked into the whole thing i began doing the anti-fur campaign for PETA, and then uh over the years did a million and one other things for PETA, last chance for animals um just even the the humane society just and local dog rescues and Animal shelters and... How great to be in a position to be able to help those causes. Oh, I know. It's so great. You can make money for them and, you know, help uh, help them out. I mean, it's, it's like, it's the reason for becoming famous. You know, <laughs> yeah. it is. There's it a is purpose. To help, yeah. to help people raise money. Why do you think Elvira has struck such a chord and is still so popular now all around the world, starting out as an L.A. local TV horror host and going national and international and still going strong today. You go to conventions and things where you're hugely celebrated at these festivals and cons. Yeah, it's it's been pretty crazy. I, I mean, for every year, from the beginning, I kept thinking, oh, this will probably be my last year. I just kept thinking, you know, it's, I'm getting older. It's going to burn out. You know, it's not, not happening. And uh it just keeps going. Finally, I quit telling myself that, you know, I'm ready to go till I'm 90 now. But um, Why do you think it is? I, I think, well, first of all, the character uh, has three things that I always say that make up that character. And there's really no one else who have those three elements. And that is a evil, an equal, evil too, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> equal combination of kind of uh, funny, sexy, and spooky. Hmm. A lot of, there's a lot of people out there who are spooky. A lot who are funny, a lot who are sexy. I don't think there's another one that has all three of those elements. Some have two. Some have one, but I don't think anybody. And it's a timeless combination too. It's not tied to the '80s or '90s or aughts, you know. Yeah, yeah, not really. And so I, I think I have different people who like me for different reasons because of mm. that. People, there's people that love the 
you know, the humor. There's people who love the horror element. And, of course, there's, you know, all the guys who love the boobs. Right. But, uh, <laughs> so you can't forget that. That, that definitely draws in a, a crowd, you know. But yeah. the other element is that I became very synonymous with Halloween. Yes. And, I mean, it's so funny because Halloween, like I said, was always my big holiday mm-hmm. from the time I was a little kid. Oh, me too. And, yeah. I, oh, my God. The only the, the real bummer about being Elvira, the only really downside is that I used to come up with the most amazing costumes every year. You know, after I moved away from my parents and everything, right. Halloween, I'd start planning my costumes six months ahead of time. And oh. I always had really fabulous costumes. And, oh, you, you got to be Elvira. Uh, Huh? Now you've got to be I know, and now I wear the same damn costume (laughs) all the time every Halloween for 36 years. It's kind of a bummer because I was so into that, but I'll take it. It's worth it. But but, um, kind of becoming synonymous with a holiday has really, it's a little like Santa Claus at Christmas, you know? Even though I maybe go into hibernation during the rest of the year. Halloween time, I'm back, and people are seeing me on TV and everywhere else. Yeah, and on the postmortem podcast now. So exactly. <laughs> thank you now so I much can for finally have yes. made it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us, Cassandra. You're it's really thank great, you. and I look forward to seeing you again soon. Thank you so much. You can see you can't shut me up once you start me. Turn it on. Mm, I don't. Stop. I love it. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> If you're enjoying Postmortem, it would be a great, great favor to us for you to rate and review and subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Uh, You can access all of my video interviews and behind-the-scenes documentaries, things like that, at mickgarrisinterviews.com. Reach us on Twitter at PostmortemMG and on Instagram on PostmortemGram. Thanks a lot for listening. Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes. Calling all coffee drinkers. If you've been trying to enhance your daily coffee routine, then Quest has got your back with their brand new iced coffees. Now available in two delightfully delicious flavors that'll be sure to add an extra pep in your step. Vanilla latte and mocha latte. Quest has been on a mission to help fuel you with protein-forward foods you'll love. Each bottle of Quest iced coffee is packed with 200 milligrams of caffeine, the same amount as two cups of regular coffee, plus 10 grams of protein per serving to help you supercharge your day. And did I mention that they only contain one gram of sugar? It might just be time to cheat on your iced coffee with iced coffee. Find Quest iced coffees on Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition. That's Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition.